G'day Noob Sparrow community, lots of exciting things happening here at the Noob, Noob Sparrow studio. What's happened Turbo? Well we're kicking off our month of mackerel with our interview with Rob Allen and mid-month we will have another interview for you with Dr Richard Pillins. Now he's a, an Aussie based uh, Sparrow who's been shooting mackerel forever and a day and if there's something that he doesn't know about shooting mackerel, well it's not worth knowing. And we're going to do a few other little things for you. We're going to do, we've got a few posts on mackerel records and um, how to cook mackerel and how to fight and how to land mackerel as well. What else is happening, Shrek? Well, you got some feedback from Jacob Barnes, and he was, I think, the original sort of catalyst for this month of mackerel. He wanted to know more about... Hunting techniques, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sent him an email and he, he said he wants to know more about hunting techniques. So we've got plenty of hunting techniques this month. Yeah, and look, we had we had another few shout-outs and emails and, and a bit of interaction with our community. Anthony Moleman on the Gold Coast, um, thank you for your suggestions. Sebastian Kramer, a freediving instructor in New Zealand, he's a regular listener. G'day, Sebastian. G'day to you. Um, on Facebook, Mitchell Marriott King, George, George King Turner. He's great, uh, great vids. Yeah, he's got some great vids coming out of New Zealand. And uh, Roman Castro on Diablo Spear Guns from... Guatemala, thanks for you guys uh, reaching out to us on Twitter. So also good day to the to our listeners in the UK, particularly Plymouth and the West Sussex areas. Thanks for um, tuning in, listening to the New Spiro podcast. Hey Shrek, we've got one other thing to announce, don't we? Yeah, that's right, my pigeon lung friend. We've got one more important development <laughs> to announce before our featured interview with Rob Allen. We would like to welcome aboard our very first and second new sponsors. Yeah, that's right, uh, Adreno Spearfishing Supplies here in Australia have got behind the show and, and they've um, shown their support. And also Nautilus Spearfishing Supplies in Miami in the US have got behind the show as well. So thanks for coming on board, guys. We really appreciate your support. So welcome aboard our American listeners. And uh, tell us a little bit about Adreno here in Australia, Turbo. Yeah, you can find Adreno at spearfishing.com.au or you can visit them at their stores in Wollongabba, Brisbane or their new store, which will be opening up on the 12th of September down in Sydney. Exciting news for Adreno and Spiros down there in Sydney. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so thanks for coming on board, Adreno. And um, yeah, head on over to www.spearfishing.com.au. You can find, if you're just starting out, you can find everything about advice on where to go spearfishing to how to get started spearfishing. So. And where can our American listeners find Nautilus Spearfishing, Shrek? Yeah, so NautilusSpearfishing.com. I mean, you and I come across Andrew's stuff on YouTube a few years ago. Um, he's got some great tutorials on there. Up from I think we actually pinched a few and, and put them on the website. We, we <laughs> We've got a chest loading tutorial done by Andrew himself up there. It's, it's great. So they offer free diving classes and, uh, and, all, and a comprehensive range of spearfishing equipment, including Rob Allen, right there out of the shop in Miami, Florida. It's at uh, 348 Southwest 57th Ave. Check them out at NautilusSpearfishing.com. Fantastic. All right. Without uh, further ado, Fish, let's get in. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Noob Spiro podcast, where we interview experts, authorities, and characters on all things spearfishing. Come and join us after the show at noobspiro.com, the online spearfishing community helping you to become a better Spiro. Here are your hosts for the show, Shrek and Turbo. G'day Noob Spiro community, Shrek and Turbo here. Joining us today from South Africa, a man who helped revolutionise modern day spearfishing. He did this by reimagining and redesigning spear guns for larger fish. Rob Allen is still producing some of the best equipment in the world. Welcome to the show, Rob. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you very much for that. Cool. So Turbo's been a long-time fan of your equipment, Rob. It's, it's almost awkward sometimes. He he loves uh, <laughs> using his Rob Allen spear guns. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, lo- yeah. 
Love your gear, Rob. Um, thanks for the awkward intro there, Shrek. That's really good. Um, mate, if we could just find out a little bit about your spearfishing history, like where you started spearfishing and um, who maybe uh, mentored you and, and who you looked up to when you started spearfishing. Um, obviously, it was many years ago, like 35 years ago. Um, in those days, there was no online um, options in terms of looking up on products. So it was literally who you met on the beach or at clubs, if you were lucky enough to be a member of a club, there were very few spear fishermen at the time. The, the sport itself was very, very unique. Um, not really unique, but uh, it was really the, the t type of person it seemed to attract in the old days was was off the bell curve, you could call it. Um, <laughs> guys who were very independent and liked to do their own thing. They weren't really team players. and. Uh, so it was very hard to get anything out of anybody, and the majority of the guys didn't really want to show you their little secrets. But after several years of spearfishing, I was lucky enough to end up running a marine reserve up in the northern provinces, and I was able to meet a lot of different guys from different parts of the spearfishing community, and uh, that way I was able to join together a lot of ideas and test out theories and uh, having such good diving conditions right on my doorstep, it was very easy to, to test all these options and uh, then come up with what I thought worked best. And uh, the results spoke for themselves and everybody then wanted me to build guns for them and so it went on. Yeah, okay. So what sort, what sort of fish did you start off targeting um, in your early days? And because I was involved in the working in a marine park, the there were restrictions. You could only take a game fish, no resident reef fish. Oh, so that wow. made my design of gear specifically for game fish. At the time, the only guns available were, were more suited for smaller reef fish. And if you did happen to shoot a game fish, it was just a luck. And I, under those circumstances where I wasn't able to target reef fish, I had to design my gear specifically to target game fish. So um, that was really the change, yes. Yeah, so the Rob Allen spear gun was born. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, cool. No, that's a great story. And uh, so, what you started shooting, sort of like mackerel in these marine parks, or, or yellowtail? What what sort of fish? Was a combination. Um, there's uh, what you would call the the king mackerel. We get another one called a queen mackerel, as well as the commonly known wahoo, um, as well as a few sailfish that used to come through occasionally. And um, oh, wow. the visibility was generally very clear. And the smaller guns that were on the market weren't really suited for long shots in clear water. Mm. So this is why I needed to make a longer a gun, a gun that could shoot further, but not only shoot further, but shoot accurately. Mm. And the current gun design was great in its short, smaller length. But as soon as you powered it up or made it too long, there was all sorts of um, physical limitations to it. The barrels would bend, the spears were too wobbly, and it was just totally inaccurate. And if you powered it up, powered it up more, you, you didn't actually get any more power because the spear was wobbling so badly that it created resistance. So it made sense to go to bigger diameter tubes to get more buoyancy and also bigger diameter shafts. In those days, six, six and a half millimeter was rated as the norm. Wow. Um, seven more wasn't regarded as, a, as the norm. And, you know, these days guys are using bigger and bigger. As you know, in the U.S., they use eight and nine and sometimes even nine and a half millimeter, which is very strange to us. But, wow. yeah, different parts of the world, different ideas. Yeah, it's huge. You mentioned a couple of obstacles you had starting out. So one was sort of finding a, a, a um, back in those days, finding an active community of spear fishermen that would actually help you get started. And and the other one you've clearly mentioned is, is a spear gun. So 
did you have a did you have a mentor in these marine parks? Did you have someone that helped helped you along the way with developing the equipment to shoot these game fish and um, and and learn some hunting techniques for them? Yes and no. A lot of you know a lot of the ideas guys had different groups would come with completely the reverse. One guys, one group of guys would say, this is the dominant one, this is what works, don't try anything else. The next group would arrive on holiday and they'd say, no, what those guys are telling you is hogwash, it doesn't work, this is what works. So I was able to try and extrapolate what worked and what didn't work. One of the guys, they had long guns and they said, it shoot. the, the guns tend to shoot high. If you have that problem, you need to bend the tip of the spear downward slightly to compensate. So this was the degree of weirdness that was going on at the time. And I then worked out that the length of the spear in relation to the barrel, this was pre-rail barrels, by the way, Mm. was very, very critical in terms of accuracy. And it took me a long time to calculate what what worked and what didn't work. And a lot of it was by trial and error. And then I sat down and tried to work it out on a glass top table, balancing the spear on, on matchboxes to see just where the optimum positions were for muzzle and mechanism. And eventually there was a ooh moment and uh, I got the ratio right. And thereafter I was able to basically make exactly the right balance depending on the length the guy wanted. And uh, it always worked from then on. Wow, that's that's really cool. It's great to hear. Some, some guys seem to like tinkering with equipment and other guys don't. I, I, I'm one of the ones that don't, but it's really interesting to hear the stories about developing some of this. this What's your background, Rob? Are you are you an engineer or anything by trade? Because you seem to have that kind of mindset. <laughs> no, uh, when I was at school, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I'm, I'm still wondering. I have no uh, formal education, but I'm I'm always curious, you know, and I've, I love tinkering. Yeah, so cool. uh, fortunately, now I have access to all of these uh, fancy equipment, you know, CNC cutting machines as well as 3d printers we know we have this all in the factory now and it's just so great to have the ability to to test products like this and and we spend surprisingly not myself and my partner business partner we spend probably 30 percent of our time on new projects we we really do a lot of uh, work on developing new stuff you can't believe how many things are tinkered with that don't get to the market I'd say 90% of the stuff we tinker with doesn't ever get to the market. But because I don't have a, a, a proper formal engineering background, I tend to push the limits way beyond what they should be. And a lot of the things we do, engineers told me impossible, you can't do that. As if I've been doing this for the last 20 years. They said, but it doesn't work like that. I said, it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. Sounds like, a, uh, sounds like a good working relationship. You guys compliment each other. Yeah, a little bit like it is. tracking myself. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's good. So, um, could you share with us a story of of maybe your first memorable fish that you speared? Like, what 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 was the what happened on the day? Who were you with? Um, what sort of fish was it? Can you remember a good story for our audience? Yeah, what what really got me going wasn't the fish I shot. It was the fish I've missed. Those are the more memorable ones. And my feeling was, why did I miss? What was the situation? And the very first fish, really really good game fish that was a phenomenal fish in itself. I shot at it thinking it was point blank and when it turned I realized it was a lot close, uh, a lot further away mm. and therefore was very, very large. It was a Wahoo, I'd say in excess of 60 kilos. Oh, we now wow. know that they, they, um, nobody believed they got that big. Wow. Um, nowadays we realize there are possibilities. They do have a good growth rate and there are potential fish out there. I think the world 
fishing record is over 70. I think it's 76 kilos. So they do get that size. And that, that fish swam up to me and I was inadequately gunned with a small little reef gun. Mm. And I uh, thought, wow, you know, that, that was crazy. I would never have been able to handle that fish with this little Mickey Mouse single band, six and a half mil spear that was inaccurate. <laughs> as, as Yeah. So that was my ooh moment that I had to do something, that the next time I had an opportunity like that, uh, I would have uh, be correctly gunned. So I built what we then determined, uh, felt was a very big gun, although by today's standard it wasn't. And I was able to start landing big mackerel. Um, for instance, I got, I think, 21 in one month, over 20 kilos. Wow. And that was the pudding, <laughs> is that the gun was plenty adequate and could do the job. Yeah, wow. And uh, since then, you know, guys have used my gear to take many fish well over 100 kilos. It's not about, it's not really about the gun. It's about the Indian behind the, the gun. Mm, mm, definitely. We've got, we've got a section later in the show called Veterans Vault, and we actually wanted to talk with you a lot about um, pelagic fish and particularly mackerel, and maybe you'll have some lessons to share with our audience for, for that. But for now, what would be your, the scariest moment you've had out spearfishing, and, and what did you learn from it, Rob? Uh, well, just about every dive is a scary one. <laughs> uh, I can't recall anything. Look, most scary is when you lose somebody, and uh, I've been involved in a few incidences where guys have had shallow water blackouts, and it's that's, that's the most... Uh, it's not scary, it's just... Bad, 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 mm. bad for the business, you know, and, and it's just not pleasant to go through that. And mm. I regularly lose somebody just because the guy swam off in a different direction and we find him later. But that moment when you've lost him until you find him is, is scary as hell. And it, it's really, guys have got to just dive safer these days. You know, everybody dives together, but one guy will decide to swim off in a different direction without telling anybody. Now you've lost the guy. It could be for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But for that 10, 15 minutes when you don't know where he is, all sorts of weird things go through your mind. So that, I'd say, is the scariest part of diving for me, is, is trying to keep the guys aware that they must be safe and stay safe. Yeah, it's a common theme. I think every every experienced guy that we've spoken to so far on the show has all have all a similar story, and they all sort of recommend that guys should sort of buddy dive and, um, and become proficient at diving. Everyone seems to have one of those guys in their crew, though. The guy in our crew, Rob, who does it, his name's J-Lo, so shout out to him. <laughs> Just name and shame. Yeah, name and shame, Rob. And uh, But it's, it's it's definitely a practice that I think you, you maybe develop as you get a bit more experience as well because you, you get used to those those moments. You never get used to it. You never get used to it. You know, every time you think back, in fact, if anything, they seem to get worse because now you're more aware of what potential issues are, you know. Mm. What am I going to say to his mother? What am I going to say to his wife, you know, his kids? You know, these are the things that go through your mind. Yeah, it's, well. it's not pleasant, but that's why we've developed this uh, small flasher with a little flag on top because the guys tend to stay with their flasher. You know, oh, okay. most guys these days are diving with real guns and they don't have floats on the surface. And that's mm. the problem. Whereas I try and insist on my guys when they're diving, they take the flasher with them. Apart from the fact it will bring in a game fish or quite possibly bring in a game fish, at least there's a flag on the surface that's much more visible and the guy stays near his flasher. So it's always visible on the surface. Yeah, this is interesting. Okay, so we, we, we actually know a few guys that are diving like that, Rob. I think they're using one of your... your um, your flashes, but I think they've almost got like a quasi um, dive float, and they're two guys diving with real guns, and they one's holding on to the flasher slash float, 
Working. and the other one's diving and they yeah. and they they partner up like that it seems to be a system that's becoming quite prevalent with real guns is that what you're seeing correct um yes that's what we're trying to push you know we have a quite a large dive boat and we dive six up on the boat so you've got five guys in the water at any one time um at least two or three of those will be below the surface whilst you're moving around so it's so critical to know where the divers are in that scenario when they're all diving with with real guns mm. so um we have a rule now is if the guys are in the water if they call for the boat we start the motor up and it goes into gear and no more than that so at least if a surfacing diver is in the area he will see the boat moving slowly and even if a prop does hit him on idle it's far less likely to hurt as much as it would if it was at a higher um, throttle so we idle around in amongst the divers unless i've got all of them visual okay that's that's an interesting um idea, idea as well that, that that would work well that's a good system uh, have you got anything else any other advice for guys that are diving exclusively with real guns to maintain some safe working systems? What I have seen in terms of trends is more and more guys are now using these fancy dive watches. Um, I think it's a very, very good thing. It definitely starts taking the guesswork out of your, your diving times. Um, you can monitor your body much, much easier knowing uh, you have a stopwatch on your arm that's calculating. The guys that buy... Uh, first talk about watches, their main intention is to purchase something that will give them their dive time and their depth. That's not important at all. 99% of the need for that watch is to give you your surface interval. And uh, depending on your physical ability, your surface rest period should be either the same as or double as or three times what your dive time was, depending on your fitness level. And the guys very soon work that out. And that, to me, has become has made diving a lot safer. It's taken out that guesswork, and the guys now can see how much adequate uh, rest time they need before they have a comfortable next dive. They're not guessing. The problem is you've been down, you've, you've seen a fish, you're at the end of your dive, you surface quickly, you know the fish is still down there, and that rest period drags. You could be on the surface for 30 seconds, but you think you've been there for two minutes already and you tend to dive too soon. That's where the problem comes in. Whereas this watch takes out that guesswork. You're not having to push any buttons. It's all automatic. You dive, you hit the surface, have a relax, look at your watch. Oh, I did a one and a half minute. I now need three minutes rest time. So you just takes that guesswork out and you're diving much safer. I think that leads to a lot less shallow water blackouts. Yeah, cool. Oh, that's, a, that's a great idea. I was just running the numbers then um, as you were talking because I was thinking... That means turbo's got to stay out on the surface for at least 45 seconds. So three times the dive time, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Jokes aside, what you've got to look at, and it's something they've scientifically proven, just to give you ballpark figures, imagine a a non-diver. If he can hold his breath for two minutes and then he passes out, um, you take that same diver when he's fully oxygenated, let him hold his breath for, say, one minute 49 for him to recover back to adequate oxygen levels or normal oxygen levels, he needs something like 15 times the surface interval. Oh, wow. But now you move that back. Instead of staying on the surface, you know, don't push the dive too hard. Rather, do a shorter dive. You need less time on the surface to recover. So, for instance, if you can always do a two-minute dive, don't do, if you do a two-minute dive, you need at least four to six minutes recovery. Mm. The same person with the ability to do a two-minute dive, if he only does a one-minute dive, then he actually only needs a one-minute recovery time to get back to the same oxygen levels. Yeah, okay. So oh. a short dive actually needs less rest time, which means more downtime over the period of the day. Mm. So, more time. yeah, and then it always gives you that reserve so that if you are down for a minute, you're about to leave the bottom, you know you can do a two-minute. There's your fish in sight. You do have that gap to chase. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, well, all right, Rob. Might just change up the pace a bit. Um, a question that we like to ask everybody on the show is, what's the funniest moment that you've experienced out spearfishing? Uh, I wouldn't want to mention many of them. <laughs> That's what everybody says. Sometimes a lot of our guests say the same thing. We've had some shockers though, oh, so yeah. don't, don't don't worry, um, Rob. Uh, I won't I won't go into detail, but it basically revolves around seasickness and uh, tapeworms. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, that's that's too in, that's too intriguing. You're gonna have you to tell the tell story us this now. Story. <laughs> no, no, not on the air. <laughs> uh, have you got an, have you got another moment that you you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, oof. not off the top of my head. Sorry. Yeah, nothing that nothing that'll go down. We've had, well. we've had plenty of poo stories anyway, so uh, tapeworm in vomit's pretty good. Yeah, we, <laughs> we might come back to a funny story, Rob. Um, so we have a section on the sh- on the show we call Veterans Vault, and this is the part of the show where we like to ask our special guests to take us deep into an area of spearfishing expertise that they would like to share about. Arrgh! It's time to open the Veterans Vault! Thanks, Barnacle Bob. Today's Veterans Vault is brought to you by Adreno Spearfishing Supplies. They've got everything you need to get started in spearfishing and freediving. Yeah, when I was getting started four years ago, I remember the frank and honest advice that Sam Cox gave me about everything from what spear gun to buy to how to meet and contact experienced locals like Turbo Brown. Thanks, buddy. You can visit them at their Queensland store in Brisbane or their Sydney store. Yeah, so from all of us here at the Noob Spear, a big thank you to Adreno for your support. Head on over to spearfishing.com.au for all your spearfishing equipment needs. So we call this the Veterans Vault. Um, I'm excited. Oh, we, we really wanted to question you about about pelagic species, I know you've got a real passion for taking down big mackerel. And uh, so what were some of the early lessons you learned taking down these big fish? One of the most important ones, and I see it all the time with new guys, is they tend to rush the moment. And slowing yourself down is really, really difficult. You think you're going slowly, but you're actually going too fast. Um, an easy way to, to, to sh- an indicator as such is the way you maneuver the gun. If you're maneuvering the gun that the, the bands are, are, are rattling, you're moving it too fast. So that's an easy indicator. And uh, that, to me, the moment you move that gun and the, and to the bands rattle, you spook the fish. So if you can go slow enough to maneuver everything, everything slows down so you're not rattling your bands, that makes basically an approachable speed for hunting mackerel. Mackerel also have a blind spot. And uh, if you're swimming behind them they're, and they're watching you, you can't really gain at any speed. You can only just gain on him. The moment he turns away and he can't see you, he's, you you're now in his blind spot. You can swim as hard and fast as you like to catch him up until he turns again. By then you've gained more than enough distance to probably take the shot. And uh, they do allow that. Mate, if, I could, if I could just ask this question, if for a new guy going out and he's never been uh, mackerel hunting before and, and maybe he's a short diver or he's got a boat, what are the weather conditions and the moon phase you would look for to give you the best chance of uh, coming into mackerel territory? I'm not sure how it works in your area. Um, obviously, areas vary from place to place. What works for us here, I've found, is definitely the, the, the best period of time is just uh, before full moon. The last four or five days just before full moon seem to be the best. Sometimes on full moon is good, but sometimes it just stops dead. When I was involved in 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 the marine reserve, I used to keep records of all the fishermen for obvious reasons. That was my job. And uh, I actually tracked the moon phases to, to catch rates. And they were very, very um, dominant, good catches just before full moon. I found in, in our area with northeasterly winds, you can get the fish in any depth. 
But if it was blowing a strong southwesterly, they tended to go deeper. The wind definitely had an effect. Okay, wow. And, and what about the, the tide? So the tide period during a day, are you finding that you, you come across more mackerel in a building tide? I've, one of the areas I've never really checked closely is tidal movement. In, in our areas, we're pretty much on a straight coastline. There's no islands to create a tidal flush. And uh, I haven't really noticed that much difference. Whether it has an effect or not, uh, it is possible, but I, I can't say I've had experience of it. But there are guys that do talk about working around tides. They seem to prefer an incoming tide. Cool. So attracting mackerel once you're in the water and you're out in these uh, in this good time to to hunt them, do you use uh, or, or do you recommend for new guys to use burly flashes um, or, or making noise? What, what sort of things do you use to attract mackerel? You guys over there do use a lot of burley, but here it's not that common predominantly because it attracts other things that eat people. So we tend to use, <laughs> we tend to use flashes. Um, the advantage of a flasher is, well, I set it at a depth that's obviously easy to dive with uh, too, but within my sight. If the water's not clean, I have it just at the edge of my vision. But if it's clean, I hang it as reasonably deep as I can so that it attracts the fish out of the deep that I couldn't see up to it. Um, a trick I've learned is don't go too big with flashes. You have too much stuff in the water. I've seen it actually fish turn away from big flashes and go to smaller flashes. We've actually reduced our size now because of just that. The smaller flasher actually seems to work better. The fish are more likely to come to it. Another trick is you're often looking around, looking around. Suddenly you see a, a mackerel and it's already been to your flash and it's not turned away. Don't dive at the fish. You'll never get to it, and you're going to be diving hard and fast. You're going to spook it. It's going to uh, swim off. But dive at your flasher like you're going to eat your flasher. Dive aggressively at your flasher so you're not aggressively approaching the fish. Four out of five times, he'll come back because he's been there. He's looked at it. He was undecided. He left it. Now something else is going to the flasher. Now he gets jealous. Wow, maybe there's something he missed. And invariably, he will come back to see why you're aggressively attacking or approaching the flasher. Wow, that's a great tip. That's awesome. Thank you. Cool. What's your um what's your personal best mackerel, Rob? What's the what's your biggest mackerel to date? I just I just can't beat the twenty eight kilos. I've had a twenty eight and a half. I've had five or six around that size and uh That's just a baby, just Rob. We, we we put them we, we don't even shoot them that small in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys are spoiled over there. We, we seldom get them over thirty yeah, but uh, yeah, they are here. I have, I had seen one that actually tried to eat another of mine, and the one I had on the line was twenty-two. Wow. The one that was trying to eat was at least three times that size. It was mind-blowing to see. Yeah, that was another one of my your, moments. So, Not so we're, we're, shot, but, we're talking about a sixty, what fifty, sixty kilo mackerel? It was crazy, unbelievable. It yeah, literally you know. attacked my one that was twenty-two. Wow. What a fish. Yeah, I was in the water trying I was trying to jerk the spear out of the little one to reload. <laughs> the bigger one. Wow. <laughs> you're just you're just hoping that your flopper wouldn't engage, eh? Hey? You had a faulty flopper and you could yeah, get it out. Trying everything to get the spear out and reload, but by the time I got it reloaded he was gone. But oh what a bus. Wow. I was just joking before, Rob, my biggest mackerel's about fourteen kg, so mm. I think your one would have eaten my one. All good. <laughs> I recently looked up the record um, for the Spanish mackerel. It's, it's a guy from Western Australia, Greg Pickering. It was 46.2 kilos. 
and it, it, it's absolutely massive. But there's a lot of sort of anecdotal sort of evidence out there that they do get up around the 60 kilo mark with um, professional fishermen and, and people like that, saying they get much bigger. But um, yeah, spearers were yet to get that 50 kilo mark. No, you're correct. You are correct. Yeah, I've I have seen. Um Un, unrecorded records of, and pictures of that are said to be in the mid-50s, um, caught on hand lines in Mozambique. So they are out there. They, they're a fortunate fish that they grow at phenomenal growth rates. So it's very hard to, to over-exploit them. Um, the smaller ones we get around the six kilo mark, those are only a year old. And when I was involved in, in, in um, the marine reserves, we did a lot of research on them. So they're a very fast-growing fish and, and they tend to recover quite quickly from being hammered or environmental things, but they're also very sensitive fish to the environment. They The populations can drop drastically on environmental changes. Yeah, okay. We get um, we get a, a, a something in the fish over here called cigatera. Um, it's a poison. It, 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 it affects people quite badly if they eat it. It, it happens at particular times of the year. Um, Turbo knows a little bit more about it. Do you guys have an equivalent over there in South Africa? Fortunately not. Um, I think our coral reefs to the north of us are still fairly pristine and uh, haven't picked up on, on that uh, that toxin. Apparently it's something that gets into the coral and the small fish that eat the coral eat it and that gets transferred onto the bigger fish and it, it tends to accumulate in the, the bigger game fish. You can eat the smaller of the same species but not the larger. But no, there's never been a known uh, case in our waters. All right, cool. Uh, we have another section on the show, Rob, called Fast Five Facts for Noobs. See, it's time for Noob Spiro's Fast Five Facts. Gracias, Pedro. Today's Fast Five Facts for Noobs is brought to you by Nautilus Spearfishing. Yeah, Nautilus have got a brand new shop up and running at 348 Southwest 57th Ave in Miami, Florida. They offer freediving courses for Spiros of all levels, including those that would like to give spearfishing a go. So check them out at nautiluspearfishing.com. They've got a great range of products, and they've got a great blog there with plenty of tips and tricks to get you started. So that's nautiluspearfishing.com. So Rob, these are five short pieces of advice that you would um, give to someone starting out. Perhaps the sort of advice that you would have liked when you started out yourself. Um, Definitely research as much as you can. And, uh, you know, in the old days, we... We had to learn ourselves, and it took me a long time to work out that I shouldn't swim flat out towards the bottom. I thought swimming fast would get me there quicker, therefore I could stay down there longer, you know, that type of thing. And how to equalize a mask. And these are simple things that a lot of novices don't know about. It. One of my dive buddies for several years wouldn't dive over five meters, he said, because he's got a problem with his eyes. And I, what, what do you mean you've got a problem with your eyes? No, they get sore. I said, well, don't you? It must. Then I worked out. It was the vacuum in his mask. He did not know how to equalize his mask. Oh, so right. simple little things like that. Get back to the basics. Learn about magnification. If you're a beginner diver, magnification will be a big factor in your, your initial diving. Um, we as old divers don't know that because our eyes become accustomed. Our brain adjusts those sizes back to normal. So we see things in the actual size, whereas a novice doesn't. He'll always see things one third bigger until his brain eventually adapts. So, well, there's two factors, equalize, sizes, yep. and use, use the right gear. Don't, don't go and buy the, the cheapest stuff out there. You know, buy cheap, you're going to buy twice. I've come across that myself. All right, we've got four, Rob. you got one more. <laughs> uh, buy Rob Allen. Yeah. <laughs> buy Rob Allen. <laughs> oh, good. Shameless self-promotion. That's, we love that. So that's all good. All right, so what did we get there? We got uh, research as much, much as possible. So do your research on the web or get a mentor. Um, 
learn to equalize your mask. The reason your eyes are sore is you're not equalizing your mask. <laughs> learn about magnification. I think everything's a third bigger or a third closer. So you've got to take that into account yes. um, when, when making your shots. That's a, that's a real big deal, particularly in clean water. Uh, buy good quality equipment. Otherwise, you'll be buying it twice. And number five, buy Rob Allen. <laughs> <laughs> Just going back to, to masks, something a lot of people don't take into account. Um, you get twin lenses and you get single lenses. Twin lens masks are generally a lower volume. Um, the newer models these days have actually got pretty good vision. But that little joint in the middle between the two lenses actually affects your ability to judge distance. It's not a problem when you're hunting reef fish because you've got a lot of reefs surrounding you and you're able to use the reef as a reference in terms of judging sizes. But in open water, that definitely inhibits your ability to judge the size of the fish and therefore the range. There's nothing around you other than thing. If you put your finger up between your eyes and, and look, it definitely affects your ability to judge range. And uh, a full lens is better for hunting game fish. Twin lens, not a problem, deep water diving and reef fish. But if you're hunting game fish, try and stick with a, a full lens. Your ability to judge range is, is, is vastly improved. That's pretty interesting, actually, because I know Barry Paxman's still using a single-lens barley mask, and he shot some incredible blue-water fish. I mean, that's what he—that's his whole game, isn't it, blue-water fish? Mm. So I wonder if there isn't there something. There you go. There you go. All right. The next section we have on the show is called Crucial Kit for Noobs. I mean, we've already sort of started talking about it, Rob, but, um, like, when guys are starting out, what, what is the piece of equipment they probably get wrong the most, and, and how can they correct that? You're, yeah. <laughs> Basically, buying cheap. I've got guys that come in here with, with scuba fins, which are great if you're scuba diving, but not good for free diving. That's a, probably the most common ones. Guys have bought them or been or borrowed them or bought them secondhand, and they're trying to dive with scuba fins when spearfishing. Those buckles just get so entangled everywhere. Mm. And it, it takes a while for the guys to understand that a, a closed heel fin is, is way better than a, a scuba fin. And, you know, it might not, you know, the scuba fins aren't slower, but they do use more energy. You know, they're designed for scuba, and they work great for scuba. Donning them on and off with scuba tanks on your back makes life a lot easier. Closed deal fins are probably the one of the issues that, that I have a big bugbear with. The other is clear skirted masks. Scuba guys love them, and they were their big rage, and they are great if you're on scuba. But as soon as you're snorkeling on the surface, the light shines through the side of the clear skirt and reflects back off the lenses, much like driving, trying to drive your car at night with your interior light on. So... Stick to a black skirted mask, not the clear skirted mask. Okay, cool. Well, that's excellent. That, that couple of great bits of advice there. All right, um, Rob, what, what's um, some of the exciting gear developments we can see in the near future from you? What, what's sort of maybe about to hit shops soon? Have you got something in the works? I'm not allowed to discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. Uh, our problem is, is we over the years we've occasionally uh, let slip what we're developing and, and a lot of our development takes a long time. Um, for instance, we've been working probably nearly 18 months now on an open muzzle. Um, it's not ready yet and it could take another month, it could take another six months. Um, we've been working on a new carbon barrel. We had problems with um, the older barrel and the, the resins and epoxies we were using were in the old days was the best on the market at the time, but technology's moved on. We also never made our own barrels. We had them made out, so we didn't control that. We've just spent the last eight months in-house developing. We've actually had to buy a whole factory to put the machine in, 
and we built our own machine. It's still not up and running 100%. Um, why I was delayed speaking to you earlier was I wanted to watch the machine switch on for the second time, and they're about to run it again. Um, we're just trying to revolutionize the manufacture of carbon um, barrels in this day and age in terms of the way it's made. Hand laid up like fishing rods and that, which a lot of the guys are using, you have to go very thick-walled, it's very costly, and you can only make one at a time. Whereas our system is, it's called pultrusion. It's similar to extrusion, which is like they make the aluminium, but it's the opposite. You're pulling the fiber through a shaped die, and that's heated and the resin sets off in it. It's quite complicated in terms of how the machine works. Um, give you an idea, it's 17 meters long. Wow. But it's a continuous process once you get it right. So it takes a day or two to set up. So we've been hard at work with that. We have already, the first test that came through showed us we had a 50% improvement in structural strength and rigidity. And uh, we're just testing a new material now, which is said to add another 30%. So we, we're talking leaps and bounds compared to what we used to have out there mm. in terms of uh, the quality. And it's in-house now. We have the machine. We control it. We run it. We do all the testing in our, so that's where we're really pushing our limits. We've built testing machines for our handles. We now know how many cycles they can take before they show wear, and we've made little tweaks and adjustments over the years to, to improve on this. The, the latest one have, have increased the pull tension um, to exceed the equivalent of four times 20 more rubbers at max tension. Wow. You know, nobody's ever going to load that. That's what the, the mechanism can handle. Um, I don't want anybody to go near that sort of weight, but that's the sort of compression that it can handle. So this is the thing we have now in-house where we can do a lot of testing with. A lot of our latest work is on testing. Um, every single um, wishbone has a testing machine. It's hydraulically tested before we put them out. We don't want knots to slip or anything to go wrong. We pre-test everything in-house. And uh, we've been building machines to do just that. Um, to make sure the product is, is where it's at. And we need feedback. You know, we, we dive as ourselves. So we do get to dive, but not as often as, as we would like. But then again, we couldn't dive all the time. We wouldn't be able to produce goods. So we do need feedback from guys out there. So if they do find problems or issues, we're the first ones that want to know about it. And we want to improve it. At the end of the day, we want to sell gear. If our gear is not good, it's not going to sell. So we need feedback. And uh, we jump on it as soon as we can. Well, Rob, if you want uh, 120 kilos of the roughest spear fisherman out there that can, knows how to destroy gear, Shrek's your man. I'll give a good honest review this too, Rob. This is Africa. We've got plenty of those. I've plenty of them. TIA, yeah? Um, so your dive factory's in Cape Town. How many people do you employ, Rob? No, we're in Durban. It's oh, Durban. Uh, about 1,000 kilometres north. Oh, it's close. And... <laughs> <laughs> Research. It's a long way. Yeah. If you're walking, it's a long way. Yeah. Uh, we currently have, I think, 46 employees. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, we we we've been long-time fans of your gear, Rob. I I should um I shot a Rob Allen the other day. I shot a 20 20 kg yellowtail kingfish. I was pretty happy with that. It was a personal best. So uh, speaking of shameless plugs, so there's a shameless plug for you down there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was good. Um. All right, Rob, um, we're, we're going to wrap the interview up, um, but have you got a sort of call to action for our audience to take? Would you like them to um, drop in and have a look at your website or something you're up to at the moment? Um, what we did do a while ago is we put a bunch of YouTube clips on and basically explaining some of the gear and, and choices to, to make. I don't know if you've seen them. Um, I'm getting a lot of response from people, and it's taken a while, 
but um, guys come in, oh, no, I saw your clip. You mentioned X, Y, Z, and, and they really, really liked it. And uh, I've had um, emails from all around the world from guys who say, look, I've got nobody to fall back on. There's nobody here that can help me. But your clips are what's really put me to the next level. And, uh, yeah, so we're going to be doing a lot more YouTube clips, promoting product and showing what we do in-house just to get everybody out there. I mean, we've had guys come in with, with a complaint and then realize, hang on a minute, it's totally unfounded because of what we're doing. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so this is what we're striving to do is to just open book, show everybody this is how it's done, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing mm. And uh, the reasons for, I mean, just to give you a rough, we've, we've made products over the years and some of our products – uh, give an example, our belt. We originally made our belt and we made it too thin. So to make it thicker, we put ribs on it. Now, that was because we made it wrong in the first place. The ribs on it now are just to give it more rigidity. But people have copied that, not realizing why the ribs are there. It was because we made a mistake in the mold in the first place. So quite weird that things like this happen. Um, wishbones, we've made wishbone beads the size they are because that's what it was traditionally. And we since just changed our mold to make smaller beads and because there was no reason to have such a big bead. Um, so, but people have all copied ours and stuck with it, not knowing why it's what, what it is. You know, it's, it's just very, very strange to watch how people have copied stuff just because what's what we're doing. And quite often it's we're doing it just – we just thumb-sucked when we started. Yeah, the, yeah. You know what they say about imitation, don't you, Rob? They say – Imitation is the greatest compliment you can give someone, so um, that, that's that's pr that's a pretty good plug for your equipment too. If people are copying you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, really, really good to talk to you today, um, Rob. We we got a ton of value out of um, out of your interview there, so thanks Fantastic. for coming on the show and talking to Turbo and I. Pleasure, anytime. Thanks for listening today, Noob Spiro. If you'd like to find out any more information from today's guest, then head over to noobspiro.com. We really appreciate you guys as listeners. Without you, we couldn't do the show. So if you want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes or head on over to noobspiro.com and uh, sign up for our newsletter. We won't send you crap. So that's all from us. A big hooroo. We hope to see you soon. Shrek over and out. <laughs>